want to extend a huge good morning and welcome to all of you at our Bolingbrook campus, all of you at our 95th Street campus, Hobson people. So glad, so glad you're here. You know, when I grew up, uh, I lived in the same house from the time I was three till I went off to college, and across the street was a scary family. Doesn't every neighborhood have a scary family, you know? Uh, They just kind of creeped us out. They were, first of all, never around. It seemed like we were, you know, and the neighbors out and about and talking, and they never came out of their house. They were the pull the drapes shut and don't go outside kind of family. And even when they drove down the street, you know, we'd all be looking at them and sometimes go like this. They would just stare straight ahead, pull into their garage. They wouldn't even get out of their car till the garage door was closed and they were away from everybody. Well, In the absence of accurate information, speculation goes wild, and particularly with the creative minds of of children. We as kids used to talk about, oh, that family, some say they're mafia. They look Italian to me. I think I may be. Others, oh, they're Russian spies here. Should we call the authorities, maybe? Or they're drug dealers. I hear they grow it in their basement, you know, or... They're, they're, uh, they got a sweatshop in their basement where they imprison young children and make them create bowling shoes, you know? And it's just the ideas that come about are crazy. Well, they scared me, you know, as all these rumors flourished. I, I was so afraid as I would walk on the other side of the street when I had to go down the street. I, I stayed away from them as much as I possibly could. Fast forward 20 years, I'm a pastor at my previous church, and this new family comes up to meet me after the service, and they say, Jeff Griffin, we grew up across the street from you. Uh, Our church is doomed, you know, they've showed up. Wouldn't you know, they are absolutely wonderful people. Very quiet. Very shy, a little keep to themselves, but loving and kind and Christians and godly Christians. I couldn't believe it. I got to know the mom of this family, and she is the sweetest old lady you could ever meet. And the dad, turns out, he was an electric guitar player. He joined the worship team of my last church. And that old guy could light up that guitar. And, and his uh, two boys, one a drummer, the other a bass player, they were a family of musicians who were just amazing. I found so much joy and getting to know and befriend that family. And the irony is, for 15 years, they were across the street, and I avoided them like the plague. The consequence of misjudging people is immense. And the same is true with God. People misjudge God all the time. So many people, God is right there. He's like across the street. And because they misjudge what he's like, they avoid him. They don't pursue him. They don't know him. They don't enjoy him. Now, you may say, oh, not me. I, I, I understand who God is. I, I, I'm right in my knowledge of God. No, you're not. You may have a lot right about your understanding with God. You've got some that's wrong. Maybe not real wrong, but wrong enough to prevent you from knowing and enjoying him fully. Every one of us finds these barriers in our relationship with God that we can't get past. And more often than not, they're based on faulty misconceptions about what he's like. 
It's a problem for all of us. And so in this message, we're going to attack so many of those popular misconceptions about what God is like and replace it with the truth about his beautiful personality. Ready? We are studying in the book of Exodus, this whole series, five weeks on Exodus 33 and 34. And I want to read to you now verse 6 in Exodus 34. If you're newer to the Bible, Exodus is the second book in the Bible following Genesis. Simply says, the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord. All right. This is what we've been waiting for. Finally, week three, the the great theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God. It happened. You know, in the first two weeks of this series, we've been talking about it, but it hadn't happened yet. Week one was entitled Glory, and that's when Moses cried out to God, show me your glory. Moses believed that though he knew God better than anybody in the world, Moses believed God was better yet than what he knew. Moses believed that God was better than his wildest dreams, that there was so much more knowledge of God that he was yet to enjoy and discover. So Moses said, my one request, show me your glory. More than power or money or fame, Moses said, I want, I need to see you, God. That's what my soul craves, is to know what you're like. That was week one. Week two, last week, we looked, it was entitled Reflections. And Reflections is based on the fact that God gave the plan of passing by. Last week, God described the plan, but it never happened. God says, here's how it's going to happen. Moses, I'm going to guide you up Mount Sinai. There's a cave I'm going to direct you into. In the cave, I'm going to cover your eyes so you can't see. And then I'm going to pass by in all of my shining beautiful glory. God says, I'm going to cover your eyes because if you saw me, you'd die. But once I'm beyond the horizon, I'll let you see and you'll see the afterglow, kind of like when the sun has dipped below the horizon, but we see that sunset still lighting up the sky. That's what Moses was going to get to see. And he was so excited. Uh, I'm, I'm going to actually put the, the highlight the word past right here. The first part of this theophany is the physical passing of God in front of Moses. And and again, we learned that Moses got to see not God directly, but his reflections and the world around him. And that's what we get to see too. We learned that last week, that God still is in the business of revealing himself. Not totally, or we die, but rather God says, if you look at the world I've made, you will see The attributes, just like you get to know the heart of an artist by looking at his art or her art. So with God, you can look at the world he made and the people he made and the dynamics he made and you can conclude so much about how wonderful he is by the beauty all around us. So that's the world. We too look at the world for reflections of God. But surprisingly, as the Lord passed in front of Moses, he hadn't told us he was going to do this. God spoke. He proclaimed. Let's highlight proclaiming. He proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. And you'll see dot, dot, dot. We're about to read and study the description of himself that God offered. Isn't that great? Words are used to reveal God's glory to Moses 
and to us. In fact, the whole Bible is words. We call it the word. Because the most meaningful use of words imaginable is when words describe God. We use language for so many things, but no higher use of words than stringing together words in an effort to describe the nature of the creator of all. And that's what we got here. We have a description of God. Folks, you'll notice word and world, very similar words, only one letter apart, and that could be a little helpful reminder of where you can look for the beauty of God to be on display. Uh, In the world around us, and every time I daily turn to the word, what I'm asking is, God, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to know your heart a little better, having read just a little paragraph today in your word. All right. So are you interested? You know, that dot, dot, dot. Here it comes, the description of God. God describing himself. If you want to know what God is like, wouldn't it make sense to go to the source? God describing himself seems like the logical place to base your uh, perception of God on his own description. And yet, do you know that the vast majority of humanity does not base their perception of God on his own description of himself? Think, what would most people base their perception of God on? Everybody's got a perception of God. Even an atheist, you know, that atheist believes God doesn't exist. Everybody has, when they think of God, something comes to mind. For many people, it's their church of origin. You know, they grew up going to church and the pastor or the priest was kind of grumpy. And they just kind of imagine God to be grumpy like that. Others look to their dad, their earthly father, because we call God our heavenly father. And so they don't mean to do this, but every time they think of God, the attributes of their father somehow get involved there. Other people look to media, right? They've seen movies, and Morgan Freeman played God, so I just think of him, you know, every time I think of God. Folks, uh, others, many people, their perception of God is really a reflection of their own unique personality. It was Mark Twain who once said, in the beginning God created man in his own image, and man, being a gentleman, returned the favor, which means we created a perception of God that's based on who we are. If we're dominant, we imagine God to be dominant. And if we're tender and meek and mild, we imagine God to be like that. We've got to reject all these means of developing a perception of God and say, Lord, you tell me what you're like. That's what I want to base it on. So here goes nothing. We are about to read the most sacred and precious description of Almighty God in all the universe. It's God describing himself. Yahweh, Yahweh. When I say Yahweh, Yahweh, I should clarify. When it says the Lord, the Lord, the Hebrew word there is actually the sacred name of God, Yahweh. And he goes on. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Folks, those are only 10 words in the Hebrew language. And those 10 words are, again, the most sacred, precious description of God in the universe. 
I can't imagine a reason you would not memorize that. This is like a photograph of God you would keep in your, you could keep in your wallet to pull out and reflect on and stare into his, his eyes and his heart again and again. Do you know that this is the most, or this is the Bible verse that is most frequently quoted by the Bible? In 31 different places in the Bible, again and again and again, Scripture returns to either in its totality or a part of this description. The Bible writers just keep coming back. This is who our God is. God used not only the passing of his glory. Moses felt the warmth of God passing by. But Moses heard God sing this song. Can you imagine hearing the beautiful voice of God describing himself as he passed by? Oh, my. What I want to do is I want to use this description of God to blast some of the misconceptions of God that we struggle with. And here's the first. Next slide. God is aloof. One of the great mistakes is viewing God as this distant, aloof. You know, he's the king of the universe, the maker of all. He is emotionally detached from my puny existence. It actually makes sense. I can understand why people see God as this emotionally detached, aloof God. Yet it's not true. God says about himself, I am compassionate. The word compassionate comes from the Hebrew word that means the womb of a mother. And it's pointing to this, uh, this feeling is the same feeling a mother feels for the child that has just come out of her womb. Have you felt that feeling? I remember when my firstborn was born. Uh, this is the moment I became a dad. I, I was handed for, by the doctor, my little daughter, Jorah, and something awoke in me. I mean, she was crying, and I just held her. And I remember crying out her name, Jora, Jora, it's okay, girl. Daddy's got you. Dad. This I've never felt this before, and this is unbelievably powerful. This is that compassion. And God says, that's what I feel towards you. God's not emotionally detached from you, aloof. Just the opposite. The Lord holds you in his arms like a mother holds the child. And God is consumed with burning affection for you. Isn't that unbelievable? In Moses' day, all the false gods were viewed to be very aloof and emotionally detached. This is scandalous and shocking that the one true God would actually feel this way about his people. But he does. Here, next uh, slide says this. God loves impressive people. That's what people think, and it's understandable. That's how the world works. If you perform, you are valued. At work, if you perform, you get raises and praises. On the athletic field, if you win, you get applauded. You know, and it just makes sense that really impressive, spiritually great people would be adored by God, and those who are a mess wouldn't. But it's not how it works. It's not how God works. The word is gracious. Grace is this scandalous kind of love that is so utterly unearthly. Grace is undeserved love. It's unmerited affection. Grace is when there is nothing lovable about the beloved. But the source of the love is all about the unique nature of the lover. 
You know, we normally love because the, the, the beloved are lovable. God says, I don't roll that way. God says, I am consumed with affection for you, not because you're impressive. God says, you're not. God says, I love you passionately because that's who I am. I am gracious to the core of my being. Next slide. Some people say God is ticked at me. They imagine God to just be angry. I mean, the Bible talks about the wrath of God, and they knew wrath, man, growing up. Their parents were upset with them almost all the time, and they just assume that God just lives, you know, just fiery mad at me all the time. Folks, what does the passage say? God is slow to anger. Regarding anger, this is the best thing to be. And you say, no, it's not. I wish it said God never gets angry. No. Yeah, someone who never gets angry is someone who is emotionally detached. If you really love, there will be appropriate places for anger. But you don't want someone on the other extreme who's like quick-tempered and always flying off the handle. And that's where God is. God is perfectly appropriate in regards to anger. He is patient and kind. And if anger is loving and right and appropriate, yes, God will get angry, but only when he ought. Perfect. Next slide. Some people says, say, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll buy. I guess I can't deny the scriptures are clear. God has a, a measure of affection for me, but it's a little, not much. Wrong again. Folks, what does the passage say? God is abounding in love. The, the term abounding means right, if love is just a, like water, a little trickle, no. It's like a waterfall falling down on you. The affection, the immensity of the affection of God for you is mind-boggling. We do a similar sort of thing with our little kids. You know, we'll say, how much does daddy love you? This much? No. This much? No. I still ask that question to my son, though the answers have become a little higher technical than I expected. I said recently, Jake, how much do you think I love you? And he said, Googleplex. <laughs> well, I didn't even know what that meant. I go, what is Googleplex? And he says, oh, Dad, that's the largest number in the universe. And I had to Google Googleplex. And sure enough, he was right. And so I said, that's, Jake, you look at all the zeros in that number. You really think I love you that much? And he said, I know you love me that much, Dad. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you, God loves you Googleplex. <laughs> it's not a little. It is abounding. Wow. That's who he is. Next slide. Some people say, you know, I'm a newer believer and I bet God's kind of interested in me because I'm the new shiny thing. He's going to lose interest in me. I mean, I have a dull life. I bore myself. Everybody's eventually bored with me. And God says, no, I'll never be bored with you. My commitment and affection for you endures over time. The word is faithfulness. Faithfulness conveys God's covenant love extended over the decades. God says, the day you become a Christian and 50 years later, I am still as kindled with affection and devotion to you. I was reminded of this when I saw this week, I stumbled upon a photo uh, taken by a woman at Wendy's restaurant. 
she was sitting there and she saw this old man feeding his wife and she was so moved by it she snuck out her camera and took a photo and then she couldn't hold herself back she went up and she introduced herself and asked can I just ask how long you've been married and with great pride the man said 75 years we've been married isn't that incredible and he said my wife has Alzheimer's and she can't speak and she can't eat he said but I love her and every week we come here on our date night. Isn't that beautiful? Folks, that's the heart of God right there. That love that's not based on how able are you. A love that's based in loyalty that will not change, that will be faithful through the decades, through eternity. That's what God is like. Next slide. Some people say, all right, I believe that God is loving, but he loves a few. I mean, everybody is limited in how much they can love. I mean, we can't love everybody that intensely. You know, it makes sense. Like teachers have their teacher's pets. You know, God's got his favorite few. No. God says, I I anticipate that objection, and you want to put yourself out of the group saying God can't love everybody. No, look at what it says. Maintaining love to thousands. God says humans are incapable of loving thousands with that individual intensity. God says, but I'm not like you. I'm God. And yes, I am able to love like this thousands upon thousands upon thousands, and you're a part of that group that God so adores. Next slide. God can't forgive me. One of the great battles that we all face at times is in regard to our past. We've got failures that are humiliating. Oh, that no one would know, you know, what we've done. Maybe it's in the recent, this week, or maybe it's decades ago, but it's ugly. And sometimes we hate ourselves for what we've done. We can't forgive ourselves. How possibly could God, a holy God, just forgive us? Well, it's because of who he is. What does the passage say? Forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I love the three words, wickedness, rebellion, sin. It's as if God is making categories of moral failure and saying, yeah, I specialize in forgiving them all. What is wickedness? This is when it's just evil. And sometimes what we do is just downright evil. And God says, oh yeah, that's the kind I forgive. Other kinds, it's rebellion. This is when God has spoken. His authority is clear. And we know what he wanted us to do and we turned our back and rebelled against his authority. That's personal. But God says, oh yeah, I I forgive rebellion. Sin, the word that's translated sin, literally means missing the mark. It's like a target of perfection that we're shooting at. And when we miss the mark, Uh, That's a failure. God has called us to this ideal of love and holiness, and we always, often miss the mark, fall short of what God wanted us to do. And God goes, oh yeah, that's the other kind I forgive. With these three categories, it's as if God is saying, don't tell me that you have some unique failure that can't be forgiven. God says, I am the forgiving God, and I make your guilt gone. I wipe it away. I cleanse you as white as snow, forgiving you entirely if you'll repent and seek my forgiveness. Unbelievable, God. 
Next slide. Folks, this simple Hebrews, in Hebrew it's like 10 words, this simple statement is a picture of the heart of God. Memorize it. Hold it in your pocket, if you will. Pull it out. Think about it. Use it to chase away those faulty perceptions of God that'll creep into your mind like they did for me yesterday. I woke up yesterday morning. Maybe you can relate. Maybe, hopefully, you can. Uh, Alarm went off, and I turned it off, and my first feeling was kind of a dread. I wasn't afraid of anything in particular, but it was just kind of this ugly dread in me. I'm like, what is that? Added to that was kind of like a guilt. Again, not guilty of any specific sin, but just this sense of, I, I'm rotten. And I had this feeling of displeasure, like God is disappointed. Like I'm, I'm a disappointing human being. Now, some of you are like, that's demonic. And I'm sure you're right. That probably has some demonic influence giving me that thought. But I got up and I got ready. And the first thing I did after getting ready was I got to meet with God. I got to chase away this gloom. And I, uh, I turned and I didn't even have to open my Bible because I have entrusted this, this picture of who God is to memory. And I, I said, God. I, I need, I'm, uh, why am I thinking of you as like hating me? It's ridiculous. I know who my God is. I'll tell you who he is. He is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, including me, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And as I brought that truth into my mind, I'm like, no, he adores me. He adores me. And I felt the Spirit of God say, yes, Jeff, I adore you. Now, the good news is, practically speaking, this chased away some funk I was in emotionally. The bad news is I have a long way to go. The fact that in that sleepy state where my mind isn't intentionally going anywhere... The fact that I just kind of instinctually think in a gloomy direction like that shows me that this truth isn't fully integrated into my soul as much as I want. I want to grow to the place where even when I'm intentionally forcing this truth into my mind, yes, that's great. But I want to grow to where when I wake up and my sleepy mind is just gravitating to God, it's always only accurate. And so I have a long way to go. Maybe you do too. But let's, as David did, gaze upon the glory, the beauty of God until we're increasingly, not only do we know up here what he's like, we believe and know down deep in in those sleepy moments where our brain just kind of instinctually goes to God. It goes to God accurately. That's what I long for. Hey, this verse is incredible, yet, yet, There's one thing, that a point of balance that God wanted to ensure we had. In fact, let me continue what it says. Yet, yet, yet he, God, does not leave the guilty unpunished. God says all of this tender, forgiving affection is true, but God says, I am also 
just. In fact, the verse goes on to say God allows people to experience the just consequence of the rebellion. And as it goes on, it says that even spreads through generations. You know, the, cause, the sin of the fathers has effect on the generations that follow. And God says, I'm in to justice. And some would say, oh, dang, I wish he didn't include that. I wish God wasn't just. No, you don't. We long for justice. Our world needs justice. Evil men and women are getting away with murder. People are being abused. This world cries out for a just God. But there is a tension in God's character that's revealed by this. In fact, let me highlight what we just read. How do we resolve this? What is God like? He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. What is God like? He makes sure guilt is punished. And we're like, how do I resolve that? Which are you? Well, he's both. And in the Old Testament description, the, the tension is there, but it's not resolved. And we wonder, how can you be both? And that tension is fully and only resolved in the cross of Jesus Christ. Did you ever think about that? The cross of Jesus Christ is this on display. The cross of Jesus Christ is the punishment. It's the justice of God. The cross is an execution, you know. It is punishment. It's the death penalty. It's God saying, I can't wink at the sins of mankind and pretend it didn't happen. I, can't, I don't sweep the guilt of humanity under the cover or the carpet and just look away saying, oh, forget it. God says, it was wrong and the penalty, the just penalty, must be paid. And God in his grace says, I've come up with a way to pay it. How about I pay it for you, God says. Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Trinity. God in human flesh come to earth on a mission. A mission of satisfying the justice of God by paying it himself. The Bible says that the sins of humanity were heaped on the shoulders of Jesus Christ and God died on that cross. Satisfying justice. Isn't it crazy? In the cross we see, yes, he is just. And yes, he is gracious and forgiving beyond our wildest dreams. Folks, the character of God is where the cross of Christ comes from. Now, Making that point, some of you here may go, wow, I guess I never looked at, I have seen the cross and I knew it was about Jesus. I guess I didn't think of it that way. Folks, it's your only hope. It's your only hope of life eternal in heaven. It's your only hope of life here. And so I want to close in prayer, providing an opportunity for anyone who's here or a Bolingbroke or a 95th who needs to get right with God. The incredible thing about getting right with God is that it happens in an instant. People say, well, no, I'm sure you got to clean up your act for some weeks or months. No, you come as you are with wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And you say, Lord, I've been told you are forgiving. And that through what Christ has done on the cross, I can get forgiven like that. And so, yes, in a heart of repentance, we come in prayer and we can say, God, you're beautiful. More beautiful than I ever dreamed or knew. And I want you. 
I want to get right with you both now and for eternity. And so I'm here begging for your forgiveness and grace, pledging you my life going forward. And in that moment, amazing grace, we are made right with him. So I'm going to pray. You don't need to say anything out loud. The God of the universe is listening with rapt attention to the silent cry of your heart. And if you ignore this prayer, that's cool. He knows you're ignoring this prayer. But if you take this moment, this opportunity to say, I need your grace, your forgiveness. I need to start all over and do the rest of life with you. You get that glorious rebirth, as Jesus called it, in this simple prayer. So let's all bow our heads. And if this is your cry, silently cry with me. Yeah, God, uh, we, I, I got wickedness. I got rebellion. I got sin. It's bad. You know. Stuff I can't even recall I did. You know. And God, rather than trying to clean up my act and impressing you, I appeal to your nature and character as revealed in this passage. God, forgive me. Forgive me. Take what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago and miraculously apply it to my life so that my guilt, Lord, please, is washed away and that I am in an instant now made clean in your sight, adopted into your family right now, Lord. Call me your daughter, your son. Let me in. Jesus, I'm clinging to you as my only hope. I need you. You're the most beautiful reality in the universe. And I need you. I want you. I cry out for you in desperate dependence right now. In Jesus' name, amen.